Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back to the podcast show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Of course, we have another great episode for you. It's National Preparedness Month, and we're wrapping it up with a really cool host, one of my good friends, Jason Clapp. You know, he was with the United States Air Force, and then he joined NOAA as a meteorologist there. He did really great work here in California. In fact, I saw him at his work a few times, and uh, he was doing really amazing things there. And then he moved up into Washington with Yakima County, uh, he's an emergency manager and doing planning up there. And so he has a ton of experience. He has a data background. He's an emergency manager. And so he really is that that key that we're, we've been talking about of what the future emergency manager needs to look like of how to approach uh, disasters for the future and how to mitigate those disasters. So I'm excited to have Jason on here. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. I appreciate you having me on. This is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, we, we've been trying to have some uh, great episodes and, and a good lineup. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a natural fit, especially with National Preparedness Month and with so much that's been happening with, you know, I, I think we've had more named hurricanes this year than any other year. Uh, you know, Oregon wildfires, uh, you know, is changing the landscape. Washington wildfires, changing that landscape of uh, what we think of wildfires in the United States, not just California. And so, like, with you being up there and having all that experience, so, like, we definitely want to be talking about that. Uh, but as we've stressed on previous episodes where we've had veterans come on, we just, you know, first and foremost, we want to thank you for your service and uh, really appreciate the work you've done uh, in helping the United States. And, um, and along with that, we, we kind of want to dive in a little bit about your background before you got to, uh, you know, the county as an emergency manager, because you already had like these highly successful, um, you know, programs that you were with, uh, including the air force, especially. So like, when did you join the air force and you know, what was your role there? I first joined, uh, in 93, pretty much after high school. Got in not knowing what I wanted to do. <laughs> and, uh, I knew I, was, so I just wanted to do some maintenance around planes. So I ended up doing maintenance, armament systems kind of for about three years and decided, eh, that's not going to do it. So I cross-trained into weather and I enjoyed it and kept going there. I got my degree mm. and got out and went to the weather service. That's cool. So the, most, that's yeah, awesome. Most of it was meteorology. I'm sorry? Most of the time in the Air Force was meteorology. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
I think it takes a lot of guts to say you want to work on planes, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, like I, I called out my, uh, my brother-in-law and, uh, my father-in-law, uh, they, they also build their, they build and work on their own planes. And, um, you know, I, I just highly respect anybody who can just like dive in there, uh, and get their hands, uh, dirty like that. So that's awesome. Um, in fact, I had to do one special shout out. This is kind of random, but to Scott, you better be listening to this podcast. He was asking for which podcast he should be listening to on Facebook. And I said, Hey man, you better be listening to disaster tough podcast. So he said he's listening. So Scott, shout out to you, man. Um, but in any case, uh, getting back onto, t- uh, on, on track. So you, you switched over from maintenance, uh, working on planes in the air force into meteorology. What piqued your interest there? I mean, cause that's kind of a two different, completely different tracks, right? Maintenance versus, you know, meteorology science. Right. right. Well, if you, if ever around a lot of meteorologists, a lot of them had this goal as a kid. Oh, I just, I had a passion. I loved the clouds and, you know, mm. all growing up. So they wanted to do, I, I didn't necessarily grow up wanting to be a meteorologist, but <laughs> saw the position opened and I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. Let's go let's mm. try that. Um, gotten in it and was good at it. I mm. enjoyed it. Uh, one, one drawback about meteorology is it's like, the other kind of first responder job where it's 24 7 mm. weather weather never stops so you work rotating shifts you know kind of like nurses hospitals yeah if the day shift and it, that's tough on the body but um, yeah that has people exhausting. it's exciting i feel like meteorology has like in the last what 200 years 100 years has just changed dramatically um there, but there's still a, a, a high level, uh, not a high level. There's, there's, uh, a, you know, a percentage of that, that is still inaccurate. Right. Um, and so like studying weather and how complex it is and how many different things get, you know, all the things you have to do, diff- different things you have to track, you know, uh, quantum computing now is getting involved with, you know, trying to figure out right. weather and weather patterns. Um, for those, you know, as an emergency manager, we have to make calls based off of weather. And we'll, we'll talk to meteorologists. Um, what would be some advice? I mean, this is way off of what I was planning on talking about. But, like, what would be some advice that you would tell an emergency manager who is uh, dealing with the public? You know, you know, New York, hey, you're going to have this huge snowstorm, shut everything down. And then the weather comes up and something changes in its pattern and they don't have a snowstorm. Um, what would be your pitch to keep that confidence high in, um, in weather reporting? Uh, yeah, the, the public does, does they don't see all the, what goes into that. Mm. Uh, the best, best thing you do is do, I mean, weather service, whoever's forecasting, do the best you can. And I think it's messaging mm. the most important thing and getting stuff out there. I mean, people know that meteorology is not a hundred percent accurate. Well, there's no science and, that is right. I mean, all science is, has exactly. a degree of, yeah. Right. Just, I always compare meteorology to economics. Like, well, they're wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> why, do the, why do the meteorologists get, you know, cause they're making predictions that they have no idea if it's going to come through. There's so many variables. Yeah. Economics, meteorology. And yet, and yet, it's imp- it's improved so much. Um, there's a movie, yeah. a movie about um, what was it called? 
the one with the uh, the hot air balloon and it, like the first measurements they got like in high altitude. Yeah, you know I, what I'm talking I saw about? that. Well, I can't remember what the name of it was, but yeah. yes, I know what you're talking about. He was only up in the air for like two hours. They made it like a, a they made it feel like he was up there for weeks, but he was only up there for a couple hours, and yet he got so much data in that in that time frame where they were, you know, it impacted things. Right. And, um, just talk and, about and like, back at that time, all you could get was the surface weather. So getting it in the vertical going up in yeah. the atmosphere, that was a big deal. The fact that they were shocked that like, you know, it seems so normal now, like snow, rain, snow, rain, as it's coming down, as that mixture happens and the weather changes, uh, it's just wild. Um, okay. So, you made this switch into meteorology. You saw this oh, this path open up. You went for it. Is that kind of how you got into emergency management, or were you working with emergency managers? And because uh, you're still in a field that that requires kind of that twenty four seven you know tempo. Um, as a right. planner, it's a little different, but um, well, unless you're in a you know incident manager team, in which I wasn't in, in the weather service, you can deploy out, but you're not day to day. That's your job as you work rotating shifts like it was in the weather service. Yeah. So I got into weather and in the weather service, uh, we had what they called incident meteorologists where you deployed out with incident management teams, IMTs, hmm. you, have, you know, mainly the wildfires incident. So they wildfire starts, they, it's big enough where they call an in type two or a type one team. Most of those teams, if not all of them, automatically order up an incident meteorologist Usually through the weather service, not always. Yeah. And so I got into that and loved it. That was probably the best part of the job. That's awesome. You, yeah, you deploy out there with the, the team. You, you're the weather guru and <laughs> getting the weather support, and you just you you feel involved. Like, gosh, I'm a part of this team. It's yeah. exciting. It once you get the itch, I, man, it's so hard to get away from it. Like, um, I remember my first. I was I did volunteer work. And I, I was asked to help out with the disaster. And, um, man, it was like, I never looked back. Like, I was like, man, I love this. Like, feel like even, like, I wasn't the, I wasn't the USAR guy. I wasn't the urban search and rescue guy or anything. But I was a volunteer helping out with a response. And I was like, man, I always want to be a part of this, you know. So that's cool right. that you got the bug. But it wasn't always fun. I mean, there's obviously stressful times. And oh, yeah. But it's like. A, you, you just drained. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> Kind of like an addiction, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's scary yeah. to think about. What, what, what's exciting about it is it's not always the same event, and it's different locations, maybe different people, and mm. so you're feeling a lot of times with a lot of different people with different backgrounds, so yeah. you're learning a lot of new, new things. Yeah. I don't ever go into a situation and think that I know it all. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> um, even, even on weather stuff, which I don't. Well, there's this like weird complex too that happens like, and I've definitely, I'm definitely guilty of it. Um, you know, being on that national IMAT or the incident team, um, and going out to a, a local disaster, Georgia, Florida, you know, even California. I mean, California's a little different cause I live here. Uh, but as an outsider and as a fed, you know, I felt like I had a lot of weight to carry and, I, I think that happens too much. And I had to figure out like as much as I can possibly know about the comprehensive view of what's happening in this community, like it's the county level people 
who are, you know, who become the true experts of what's happening. They understand the complexity of the socioeconomic impacts. They understand, you know, if there are no roads, GPS really sucks, especially when GPS goes down. But if you, if you live in that community, you can really become an expert there as well. So like, it's cool that you have those two different perspectives of, you know, get deployed, you know, get, jump in, be that guru. And then also now becoming that expert, um, you know, your, your current role, um, up there in Washington, um, you know, even if, you know, you you guys are seeing wildfires. We talked about just recently, like you guys see, you know, wildfires every year, you're just getting out of wildfires. I can understand comprehensive wildfire management, but like you really get it. So I guess my question is like, just trying to like switch that gear a little bit of, uh, if I was going to do county level emergency management, especially with a wildfire, what advice would you give to other county level people who really need to become like experts in dealing with their community? Um, it's, I guess, understanding your community and the agencies, people involved before the incident happens. I mean, that's like yeah. number one in emergency management. <laughs> you want to, yeah. you want to know meet the people before you you have to respond or deploy to an emergency and that's not always the case because even some of these recent wildfires we've had different things come up where you're not always dealing with it every day like oh you find new agencies that you didn't really know exist or you didn't really have any dealings with before mm. and then that's when, when you learn when obviously when you exercise or when you do an actual incident or emergency we learn a lot mm. if you, you mentioned exercise there and thinking exercise for a wildfire response what would be some of those some of those uh things that you would want to put into like an exercise plan for a wildfire um doing the public information and warning mm. kind of that core capability make sure that's correct there's always stuff to get better on that yeah evacuation part of it um, a lot of our our western part of a county goes to the uh, cascade mountain crest so it's wooded it's timber up in there but as you get down on the east side of the cascades it turns into grasslands and almost like a high desert area mm. so a lot of our lower urban wildlife interface is a lot of shrubs and grasses so getting evacuation right because that stuff burns really fast so you need to get the word out quickly when you're trying to evacuate people because yeah it maybe not burn as hot but it's mm. fast and it'll burn a house as easy as if it was going through a wooded forest yeah so, I, guess, I guess that's I, every time people think of wildfires myself included most of the time you think of like wooded areas but yeah grasslands as well interesting yeah um, so it, they can start fast go but then they can go out pretty quick too because once they burn through the grass so usually the fires are fairly quick if they're in mm. grasses but they're moving fast so it's quick hurry hurry yeah there's um oh man what is that grant called so fire, fire, mitig fire mitigation grant fmag uh, yeah maybe maybe that one it's like that one and they do uh, with uh, early warning systems so if your county has a hazard mitigation plan and or, or doesn't have one, 
Call Doberman Emergency Management. No joke, do that. Uh, if if you guys need a plan or if you have your plan, you can get grants from the federal government to install early warning systems. And I think there's like a lot of counties on the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, California, um, who are all learning more about, oh, shoot, like there's all these other things. So I think that's a, a huge call out that you just did. Like, I actually love the fact that the first thing you, you said in your... Um, in your exercise plan should be like PIO work uh, because it's all about just getting people out, you know, as fast as you can, you know? Right. So huge, huge one there. Yeah. Um, Another thing on that would be evacuation and dealing with animals. So we get into the, it's kind of outside the city. There's a lot of people with, you know, the, the large animals, the equine horses and hmm. they got their goats and their cows. Like how do you get those out of there fast? Yeah. That grass fires coming at them. Uh, I just had somebody two days ago, and this is a question for you because it was a question to me. Um, they were talking about evacuation, evacuating, and they have a couple dogs. And, uh, I said, Hey, like, you know, that most Red Cross shelters don't allow dogs. They only allow service animals and, and a dog could be a service animal, but you know, that person wasn't legally blind. Um, and so the question went to me is, you know, well, well, then what do I do with my dogs? Now, in a, in a wildfire, when you just have to go, what would, what would your, your answer be? I mean, go and take your pets with you. Hopefully, you'd take your pets. We had some instances where people didn't take their pets, and they were chained to the shed out there. That was Oh, they didn't let the pets loose? No. Uh. So that was unfortunate. Fortunately, uh, one of my coworkers had gone out to the – because they had gone out to evacuate the people, they went. We went door to door to some of these these ranches, and we went back and oh man, rescued the dog, got him out of there. I mean, he was a little hair singed, but I think he was all right. But yeah, yeah, uh, so yeah, that's the worst. The, the, yeah, as far as the pets, in any large now, scale evacuation, yeah, like you can take them to a pet shelter, but like sometimes you just don't have that. Well, it, the goal is to have co-located shelter where one for the pets can go and then the, the people can go to the other one mm. or make some that you can handle both. It depends on the Red Cross too if they're helping us. During yeah. this COVID incident, we couldn't do the congregate sheltering like they would normally do. So they were basically putting everybody up in hotels. And if those hotels don't allow pets, that, that seemed to be all right. Yeah, I guess uh, silver lining a little bit when you have to figure out how to do mass uh, man, that's a. Re- I didn't even think about that. Yeah, the fact that everyone's spaced out, anyways, that makes that much easier right. to figure that out. Well, anytime we open up any other shelters in the past few years, anyway, you get nobody there or one person shows up. But they yeah. offered up those hotels, people were taken off. <laughs> well, <it's laughs> which like, I understand. I'd rather stay in a hotel and a shelter as well. Dude, I'd rather stay in my car than a shelter sometimes. Right. Uh, well, most people out here have family, and they'll just go visit somewhere else. Yeah, and then and do some of our wildfires here. If it's not in timber, it'll be done in a, in a few hours, maybe a couple of days, and then you're right back there. Yeah. So it's, it's not like in a wooded timbered area where you'd be weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. Back. Well, then if if it gets to that point, like, um, so I stood up Red Cross shelters. I was with the Red Cross before, and like, no discredit to them if that's what it just came off as, but like, uh. 
it's really there for life sustaining only. And they'll, they'll make it, you know, they have their parameters of like how many feet apart and, you know, how many beds that they can fit in a single location. Um, those MOUs in place, memorandums of understanding in place beforehand. Um, but yeah, I, I would use every resource you can, family, friends, um, to, to get out. And then like FEMA will go in there and just do like long-term, you know, trailers eventually if it's like a long-term thing. Right. Um, man, I, I really liked, I, I want to get more into like exercise planning for wildfires because that, that earth, that and earthquakes, uh, people don't really understand like the differences and like the, the tempos of that. And so like, I think that's, uh, again, a really good call out. Um, let's see. Okay. So talking from your science background, put your science hat on for a second because you, again, just <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have, again, this really rare thing in emergency management right now where I, I hope that the field goes towards is having that da data science background. Um, as a meteorologist, you know, everybody thinks, especially the general public, oh, the wildfire comes, it burns, my house is gone, and they think that's the event. Um, could you just share some sh or shed some light um, and just, like, tell tell us more about, like, what are the true impacts of the the fire, and then what are some of those um, cascading events? Wildfires in particular? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it depends on the scope of the fire, how, how large it is, how, how many, I mean, this, uh, our biggest fire we had early September, and it was about 75,000 acres. Most of, it's, most of it was grass, but we mm. did lose six homes. Uh, we had a, a fire last week, I guess we had a fire in very eastern Washington, not in our county, and mm. it burned through eighty uh, percent of the town. There was quite a few homes. I mean, the town was only twenty five hundred people, but it burned through. I don't know how many homes, but it burned up through a lot of homes. So that's terrible. That's yeah. a bigger, lot bigger scope. So it destroyed a lot of their infrastructure, uh, water. They had to, you know, of course, you got to worry about hazardous materials when it's burning through homes like that because you've got mm. burning up propane tanks and. People got gas toward their house or in freezers or whatever. Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, so it's not just burning a home and then go home. Uh, you're familiar with the campfire in 2018 in Paradise. Yeah. Burned through that town and, you know, that's, it's not just a few homes. It destroyed a lot of the infrastructure of the town. So it's not like they can just go back home and all the electricity's on and hmm. burn through a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, people don't think that wildfires are, are a hazmat problem. Like, they really are, you know. And then rain hits, and uh, I saw a model um, that showed the all the fires on the, the West Coast and burning, and then the smoke going across the entire U.S. Oh, yeah. And I sent, you know, I sent some family members on the East Coast uh, a text message saying, hey, we're sending our love. <laughs> Get us yeah. the smoke. <laughs> Uh, man, what a beast of burden! But rain really yeah. rain, rain causes yeah. problems for post wildfires, right? It, it can, yeah. yeah. Um, rain can be good for the smoke. We had, we were in gosh a week of just a week or more of just dense smoke where you couldn't even see 
you know, the ridge outside the house, you know, less than a mile, a half mile, or even, even worse. Yeah. About a week, was fires from California, Oregon, even Washington all came up in, in our area. So rain helps clear that some of that stuff out, but I'm going to get large scars where it just, what they call it, kind of nuking it or moonscaping it. <laughs> it really doesn't happen as, as much as you think. People mm. think that the fires will just burn through and everything will look just like moonscaped or everything's just charred to the ground. Yeah. Those areas are what you're concerned with when rains afterwards. You get those big rains because it just washes that ash and soot down all debris flow. Most areas aren't burned that bad. Because so it's moving not, too fast, right? It just, it's like lightning. It's getting everything that's yeah. quickly, you know, oh, flammable. Yeah. There's, so many, there's so many variables in fire behavior too. And I'm not an expert in this, but, you know, it depends on how fast the fire is moving, how intense it is, what the fuels are made of, if it's grass or if it's big, big timber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it burns hot enough, intense enough, and for a long enough time, it can you know, burn everything up. Uh, random fact, if you're building a, a, a campfire um, properly, obviously. Uh, the bigger the wood, the the longer it will burn, obviously. But the smaller the wood, the hotter it will burn. So if you want to create some quick heat, smaller stuff is better than... I see people like throwing like the big logs and, you know, it's... Yeah. Burn slow. Um, random. Random fact. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's interesting about scars because I think one of the... The, the one fire set the, the the type of wildfire that we least talk about i'm trying to remember the name of it where it'll actually go into the forest floor and burn the root systems and so like once it, it's totally different if it's bu- burning above ground and it you know those root systems can still hold but if it's burned out the root sis, root systems that's when it's uh you know we could have mudslides we dealt with mudslides um Oh man, what is that name? It was a fairly famous bridge on the Highway One. You were in California for that, um, 2016. Yeah, yeah. There was a bunch of mudslides. Which one? Sabranus Fire, probably. That was a. It lasted for months. Yeah, I was see, not uh, like Big Sur. I was thinking it was the Tubbs Fire, but yeah, the Sabranus Fire. Oh, it might have been. It might have been. I don't. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. Which one. There's there's so many freaking fires out here. Yeah. Um, can I just say random fact that campfire was, I, I understand like they do by the road or by like the location where it ignites, but campfire is kind of, it's kind of a stupid name for a fire. <laughs> a <wild> fire. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. They didn't realize it was going to be that big and devastating either when they yeah. name it based on what topography or what's close. So they just quick grab a name. But. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's not about the name. It's kind of, okay, Noah guy. I guess you're not the Noah guy anymore, but a guy who was in Noah. What is up with these names that they choose for hurricanes? Do you those know about are, that? Those are thought out years in advance, I think. Yeah, I know it's alphabetical, I but I don't get right. like... Yeah. What, just what names they pick, I guess? Yeah, like why Sally? They probably got scientists that meet, you know, these you know, conferences and say what the names are going to be for, you know, 2025 and they're going to be this. Oh my gosh. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and they'll have to get rid of one. If one, you know, big storms, they basically retire the name. So you're never going to see a Sandy again or mm-hmm. you know, that was like, that's not 
sort of was a hurricane at first. Well, Superstorm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think I still think they'll retire the name. Yeah. Oh, probably just because of what it did. Katrina. You'll never see a Katrina again. Yeah. No. I don't even want to see the Katrina again. Something like that happening again. That was that was a cluster. Um. Okay. So. Because, you know, we're talking about, like, that science background a little bit. Um, you know, I get a question a lot, and I'm just going to refer it to you. Um, you know, people will ask me, well, do we actually, are we are we getting more disasters? Is it, is it actually happening more often, or does it just appear that it's happening more often? Are we able to track it, you know, better than we ever have before? But what would your be your quick answer, or even long answer, to somebody who's asking, like, about the frequency of disasters in time. Gosh. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think some of it's a relative. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we're getting more, if we're just, we have more people that are experiencing more. We have social mm. media that spreads it out more than we used to. Mm. Uh, it's difficult. I'm sure there's a, in general weather. There's all kinds of variables. There's variables in this you know, frequency. Are we getting more? Maybe. Yeah. I'm not an expert in you know climate change or anything like that, but I'm sure we do have some kind of impact to how that you know changing the Earth's cycles and who knows. Yeah, I mean it's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of you, opinion on that for sure. Yeah, you you can't blame it name it on the one variable, one topic. Yes, we're all part of it. I mean. Whether itself, you know, the, the climate itself, climate change, whether it's natural or man-made, regardless, that has probably something to do with it. Mm. I mean, climate's a long-term pattern, whereas weather's short-term. Like always, weather forecast. That's short-term. You know, week, two weeks. Whereas climate, that takes a long time for climate to change. Yeah. So to say that. All climate, you know, all, the climate change. All, all of a sudden, we're getting all these storms. Like, well, I don't know if you can attribute it all to that. Well, what what I that's a really great answer, and I think that just proved why you're an expert because uh, you'll hear the you'll hear a, a pundit or you hear somebody like you know uh, promoting what they feel passionate about, and they'll say it's like it's only X or it's only Y. And um, I, I think the much more logical answer that the emergency manager answer needs to be, well, you know, we still need to be responsible. You know, I, I don't necessarily want to or I would ever suggest anybody else standing behind, you know, breathing in the exhaust of a car. So I, I don't like to br- breathe in bad fumes. And so I think it's smart to be responsible that way. But I also like, in, t- in terms of wildfire management, you know, 80% of wildfires are caused by humans in California, like gender reveal parties or PG&E, um, you know, outdated systems, whatever. Uh, so, like, we we are impacting our environment. You, you can't say that we don't impact our environment. So I think that's... Uh, yeah, more people are moving out of the cities or, you know, they're in that urban wildlife interface. Yeah. If you're not doing your part in preparedness as far as for wildfires, you know, creating that green space around your home, yeah, you have a higher chance of your home 
turning over. Yeah, there's a stat about that too. It's, uh, again, 80%. 80% of homes would be mitigated if they had proper uh, a clearing around their home, right? And it's not a guarantee that that would stop it, but, but it helps. Have a better shot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's not well, like, just, don't pack your house yeah. with leaves. <laughs> you know, like... Right. Yeah. You know, You know, don't leave the, the huge timber trees that are right next to your home. You know, get rid of some of those. Yeah. Just... You can be environmental friendly and still be smart for your home. Sure. Yeah. Um, you said a much more b- better political answer than I gave because I just started throwing some people under the bus. Uh, <laughs> you know, be- and because of that, like, I think you have a, you could really help us out here, too. Like, you and I can have a fairly open conversation about it. And to say, like, hey, there's probably contributing factors left and right and um, thinking about it logically. But a lot of science, because maybe it's because of social media or because, you know, people are expecting, like, you know, the Google search to always be 100% accurate, um, which it's not, right? But because they want to make a quick, quick and verbatim answer, because the nature of science has a little bit of or, you know, has a what's the words I'm trying to come up with. There's a range in accuracy, right? And we want to push towards being more and more accurate, but it is science. It's the, the nature of it. That's a pun uh, is, you know, there's always going to be a, a level of doubt. So how would you, how would you, or what advice would you give to emergency managers who are in a situation where they can't do that, where they're talking to their local official or they're talking to some politician or, even the the community and they're just so extremely passionate that it's, it's hard to communicate and you still have to help them. You still have to, to approach those topics. And so um, how would you navigate um, or how do you navigate highly political topics just in general as an emergency manager, even like active shooter stuff, like anything that can get political? Um, I mean, it's hard to take politics out of stuff because it's, it gets in there. But, I know, right? You know, I think as you said in a, a podcast earlier, you know, we're apolitical. Emergency management. You know, I don't, I don't care what side you're on. We still need to, we still need to get these people out of harm's way. So, yeah, how do we do it? So, just you almost want to say, get your politics and get out of the way and let us do our job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of COVID, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Um, gosh. What a cluster. Uh, okay, so, yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, how, yeah, being apolitical makes it easier to, to be able to approach, like, any group. Um, I had some, still, huh? Yeah, still have to deal with those folks, too. I mean, the, the yeah. political figures, I mean, they got to make decisions, and they got to deal with the public as well, so. Yeah, I mean, Another. Talk about, you know, I just brought up COVID. Again, I'm not as clever as you are. I'm just going to call it out. Like, there are some people who say these are only protesters. And there are some people who say these are only rioters. And, like, the the reality is, like, neither of them are correct. Like, you know, there's are pe- there, there is peaceful protesters going out there, right? And there there are people, some people who are really, really stupid and jerks, and they riot. Um and yet, as an emergency manager, you have to still be able to plan for, um, you know, c- civil unrest and how they interact and 
um, protecting them and the responders. Um, you know, and so like there's so many topics. I mean, we could make an entire episode about this of like just political topics in, in emergency management, but you still have to do your job. And, right. uh, what I would say is, um, like you might not always be popular, but if you're saving lives, like you're doing your job, you know? Right. Um, all right, well we could dive, you know, that's a rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, okay. You're never going to have all the answers. I want all the answers. That's why I interview people like you. Yeah. You're smart. Um, okay. So national preparedness month, talking to emergency managers, but also talking to individuals, uh, based off of like major events that's happened in the last month, I'm just going to ask you about four, maybe four different, um, natural disasters. If you could give me, uh, or give us a, a, a couple of tips that you think would be great to help mitigate them, uh, that would be awesome. Okay. So obviously we've been talking about wildfires a lot. We talked about training for them. How would you go about as an, from an emergency management perspective, mitigating wildfires? Well, you've got short-term and long-term. I mean, short-term, everybody, the whole community aspect, component, you can protect your own property and, you know, put in those, you know, fire breaks at your property, your green space around your home, your, or the defensible space. I mean, you don't want firefighters aren't going to come out there and risk their lives to try to save your home if it's inevitable that, like, the fires come too quick, I can't stop it created no green space. So they're going to move on to somewhere else to try to save structure protection. Long-term, we've got, we call the wildland fire, uh, I'm drawing a blank now, wildfire adaptive, I forget what it's called. <laughs> Basically, adaptive communities where we get oh, together oh, oh, oh. with different um, yeah. property owners and um, to try to figure out best ways for fire adaptiveness, how they can clear their space, you know, thin, thinning trees. Uh, um, and then the long term, the, you know, main, big forest, how are they going to be able to do, you know, thinning the forest out where they put those breaks in, maybe making those large forest fires not as damaging? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm not forest service or any of those. Yeah, but, but those are, those are all, all the things I would bring up. I mean... Even from a planning perspective, uh, you talked about early warning systems. Like, right. at least that's mitigating the loss of life. You know, yeah. Um, Knowing your neighbors, knowing what they have and how you can help. If you know your neighbor's you know, handicapped or whatever is doesn't have a car, how do you help them get out of there? Hmm. Uh, you got neighbors that have horses and maybe they're gone or something. I would, yeah. Neighbors helping neighbors. How are you going to help them? Get their horses out of there, you know. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> neighbors helping neighbors. Right. I'm going to coin that. When, I if I make money, I'll give them. it to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of those areas, uh, especially on Facebook, because we put a lot of our information, we put out emergency warning stuff, and we'll post it as quick as we can on Facebook and update some of the fires doing or the evacuations, uh, route closures. Yeah. We see a lot of posts in our community anyway on Facebook, and people are willing to help. Donate. I say I've got horse trailers. Where can I go to pick up some horses or animals? So mm. that is that is our thing to be working on. Is how do we corral that? Actually, get some of that for the our next little bit. Is 
how do we corral the the animal rescues on wildfire events like that? Interesting. Yeah, that's um, again that's something we don't often talk about. So it's like great perspective because we always talk about humans, but their livestock, you know, those large animals. Um, and it's always it's always feel good when you when you see those videos of like somebody you know getting the horse out of there. It always feels good too. Like I like yeah. neighbors helping neighbors. I think that is something you know where so many people, individuals, and I commend them for being emergency preparedness conscious, and they should be. Sometimes they get into this realm of like, well, it, it, the world is ending if there's a disaster. The world isn't right. ending; it's usually regional, and. Um, they get into this mindset, it's like me against the world, but really neighbors helping neighbors would, would change everything. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, you don't have to be super prepared, you know, like maybe some preppers are out there that just are ready for yeah. anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that can, they can, that can be good for that aspect. And maybe, maybe it's going overboard. I don't know. Depends on what they're trying to do, but yeah. you want everybody to at least have some idea of preparedness and what they should be doing. Yeah. That way we don't, as government and other agencies trying to come help, don't have to necessarily help. People can kind of help themselves. That's the whole idea. Yeah. Uh, I gave a pitch earlier about hazard mitigation plans. I'm going to give one more pitch, but this one's free. You can go to our website, DobermanEMG.com forward slash preparedness. We uploaded um, a family, Doberman family emergency plan and also a first aid kit. Um, like those items that people would have to to get, even the basics. And uh, like number one we called out was just insurance. Like as soon as you get out of there, like get your insurance uh, figured out. Uh, don't worry about like updating Facebook status, that kind of stuff. But like even just knowing that will make your life so much easier. Um, and man, you're going to make me think we should talk offline about like neighbors helping neighbors and ideas and like just um, – sharing freely like the, some of those ideas i think that'd be really cool um well you kind of touched on this already but like i guess like some things would be different with hurricanes what would you suggest with hurricanes all those people in the gulf right now are dealing with that um as far as mitigation or yeah, personal min- preparedness min- type stuff yeah either or um I mean, personal preparedness. People that are living in on the coast, most most people have experienced a hurricane at least once in life. Yeah. Not all of them, obviously, but um, and hopefully they should know neighbors that have experienced it, especially if they've lived there a long time. Yeah, um, there's neighbors helping neighbors. Uh, hey, maybe you should get you know hurricane shutters for your windows or something like that, or um, sandbagging events, or right. Um, I mean, when, when people, you're asked to evacuate, I mean, it's probably the case in most counties. We can't force people to evacuate. We just can give the evacuation notice. They don't have to leave, at least in Washington. Yeah. Um, so you would think that, yeah, it's just stuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you're asked to evacuate, just. That's so, you know, it's great. so logical, but man, people are not logical people. People are emotional people. And. Unfortunately, I haven't been in that situation where I've needed to. So I get it. If that's all you own and that's all your stuff is there. But again, it's just stuff. You yeah. can accumulate stuff later or you can't accumulate another life or uh, your life anyway. Marie Condi, is that her name? 
It's like where you go through all the all your stuff and you send out things you don't need. A wildfire hurricane can help you out with that real quick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's messed up. Um, okay. Well, we kind of drilled this home a little bit, so maybe we'll pass on like tornadoes and mass flooding. We'll bring you back on and talk about that if we want to. But it's okay. just like the, the same kind of concepts of just like helping out other people, having you know a good awareness, um, knowing what to put in your kit, that kind of stuff. Um, and so we, we've had you on here for quite a bit of time, actually. And so I, I'm really grateful for you coming on here. But, uh, you know, with, with the podcast, we always end up with the, the same thing, rapid fire. So we just want to ask you a, a, a few quick questions, pure opinion-based. It can be fun. It can be serious. Whatever answer you want to give. Uh, but let's do that, okay? Um, okay. Global warming or climate change? Are they the same thing? I've never asked that question before. <laughs> uh, you remember when, it, gosh, how long have we been talking about global warming? It's, it started out, that's what it was first called. They started global warming because the temperatures are rising. And then yeah. they, they attribute it to, it's like, well, it's, I could be global warming when the winters are getting harder in certain parts of the world. It's going to get they just cold, yeah. Up, right. I think they just ended up changing the name to climate change because it, it's not just warming because it can do other things too. Maybe they're saying it stronger, you know, more intense storms. Yeah. That's so, hilarious. <laughs> I, I think it, I think they're the same thing. They just transitioned the name. Cause I remember it used to be just global warming. However many years ago that started. And then it kind of went to, it got too it political and they changed, tried, tried to change the name. I think that's yeah, what, so like a rebranding. Climate change, because that can change anything. So we'll just call it that, because that encompasses everything. That's hilarious. Uh, okay. Uh, hey, we haven't talked about Georgetown at all on here. Uh, I We should have. Uh, I should have even mentioned to the audience that Jason and I went to the same Georgetown program. Um, I think I, I might have asked you one question earlier, but uh, speaking of Georgetown, what was your favorite intensive Intensives for everybody who doesn't know is uh, when we would go out to the to, when we would travel as a group to to learn more about specific type of disasters in a different location. Um, I had two of them that I liked the most. Of the best one, I think, was probably the New Orleans one, mm. just because I'm, I'm a weather weather oh, guy. Yeah, that so, makes sense. So I, en- I enjoyed that, but I I was really fascinated with we meeting with like the Plaxmas Parish. We went down there meeting with some of those folks and just hearing their stories of what yeah. actually occurred where you, you forget about, you know, the Katrina, yeah. you know, everybody knows that one, but you, they forget about uh, deep water horizon, mm. right? Deep, deep horizon, deep water horizon, deep, deep water horizon. Yeah. In 2010 yeah. is the oil for people. Yeah. yeah. Which impacted the same group of people there on the coast. So, oh, wow. I didn't, I totally forgot about that. I still remember, uh, so funny. I still remember like they, they were so nice and they were so generous with us in that parish. And, um, for those who are not in the U S, uh, cause we have a number of listeners now, not in the U S, uh, a parish in Louisiana is the same thing as a County. Um, in any case, uh, they, they brought out the food and they were going through this and then they were talking about how the fish the same fish we were eating had the the <laughs> micro uh like um you know amounts of uh of oil still in the fish and i was like you're like great uh, <laughs> hey man it 
and they were eating it, you know, and so yeah. I would not be disrespectful at all. But at the same time, sure. I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm full. <laughs> uh, yeah, they had a, they had a gumbo there, I think, too, didn't they? Yeah. Oh yeah, that man, was, that stuff was good. That was really good. And they were just like salt of the earth people. I mean, they were really nice yeah. and right. You didn't, yeah. Like it's it's hard to, especially with us who who study large scale disasters and see those numbers. It is so important to get out there. Uh, you know, I, I always tell, you know, emergency managers getting into the field, like try to get some response experience, whether that's as a volunteer or, you know, working with, you know, some local group, like get out there, meet survivors and, right. um, you know, you'll never look back. Uh, but yeah, um, same, same, similar question, Georgetown, who's your favorite professor? When we had there? Yeah. It's not your children. You can you can say who your favorite uh-huh. is. I'm trying to think. It's like I'm trying to blank. I'm trying to blank of his name even. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> God. Yeah, so you're real he close. Face for, whatever, for whatever reason. Holy crap. So oh it would have been uh would have been Johnson or Griffin or uh, Kirby or there's a guy I'm trying to think of. It was um, Johnson from England. Yeah, Johnson. I enjoyed him. He was yeah. I've tried. They all had they all had great information. Well, they're they're like true experts in their field, and you know, um, Nancy Susky and Griffin helped stand up DHS, and Doctor Johnson, um, like bioterrorism or chemical chemical terrorism expert for Parliament. Yeah. Um, just amazing resumes. Um, have to get some of those guys on this show. Uh, I also enjoyed the, the gentleman, I forget, he was there during the, I forget what intensive that was. England? We were talking about Fukushima and, oh, oh, he was, yeah, he lives in Japan, his wife's Japanese and okay. did a lot of research on, I think it was, um. Uh, the one we did in um, North Livermore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was his name? Okay. Terrorism and, and all that stuff. Because uh, I'm just going to call... Keating? Keaton? Chris Eady? Is that his name? Eady. No, that sounds about right. Yeah. And he was out... So, uh, people know this about me. that I've lived in Japan a couple times. I speak Japanese. And the guy, the guy's wife is Japanese. I might have to edit this out. The guy's wife is Japanese. He's... Uh, an expert in radiological disasters and he spent right. time out there in Fukushima and yet he kept on calling it Fukushima. And I was like, Did yeah, I was like, dude, it's Fukushima, <laughs> like Fukushima, Fuku freaking Shima. I guess, I guess I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah. So funny. And every time he said it, like I would like die inside a little bit. And yet <laughs> the information he was providing was so good. I was like, I'm not going to be that it's like when somebody yeah, says Toyota versus Toyota. Like, I'm not going to call them out on that, right? Like, sure. um, it's funny stuff. Okay. Uh, last two questions. Uh, I always ask these two questions. If you're going to give some advice uh, for uh, or the future, or what, what is one thing that you would want to change for the future emergency manager or for the future of emergency management? still learn that myself so having having data at your fingertips i know some people probably do 
and some organizations that you know hurting for funds, maybe they don't have it as readily available. Yeah, the analytics and GIS part of that, being able to have that data right there. Some people like you, you do GIS. Mm-hmm. I'm not a GISer, so I would need help in doing that stuff. But I'm still fascinated with it. like, gosh, if I knew how to use this stuff, I could really <laughs> make some roads and seeing data and stuff like that. I mean, just on a wildfire evacuations and dealing with wildfires we have around here, just to put some data on a page just to, for public view, just make it easier. Yeah, it does make it easier when you can like see it and it, it just pro- your brain processing information versus like reading a reading a several line items versus of course. map. Oh, I'm visual. I need to see it. Yeah, you know, map or something. I can't just see it in text. I need to see some numbers and graphs and all this other stuff. GIS is the most underutilized uh, tool for emergency managers out there by far because GISers are typically uh, they're, they're they are not emergency managers first, and so they want to make these beautiful products, and um, they don't just consider it map making because there's a lot of data you can analyze from that. But right. then first responders, they just think of Google Earth, you know. Right. And uh, G- thank you for saying that. Um, GIS. I think what sets Doberman emergency management apart. Wow, this is three pitches in a single episode. That's embarrassing. I feel bad about that, but I also don't. Uh, the thing I think sets us uh, apart from other potential, uh, you know, contractors is that, like, because of that GIS background, you don't ever get cookie cutter because we can actually see it, you know, where all the potential hazards are and where they're going to go, and we can start analyzing, and it just takes away that that cookie cutter feel, and it's like, hey, this is what your real problems are. And if you can get that real time, it, it makes decisions a lot easier because you've got stuff and you can see a visual. It's like, oh, wow, that part of New Orleans is under sea level. So, yeah, mm. that's probably going to go first. You know, stuff like that. We had 200 acres of a wildfire burn. Oh, my gosh, we need to freak out. Uh, just kidding. It is still 100 miles away from the closest home. You know, like yeah. just even understanding like scope. So, sure. great call out. Uh, okay. And the last question of the podcast, Jason. What is the most important, or what is the best podcast for emergency managers? Disaster Tough. All right. Right answer. Jason. That's my number one go-to. <laughs> that's the right <laughs> answer again. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, Jason, thank you again so much for coming onto our show. Uh, thank you for your service in the military and now being able to, like you are, again, that kind of that model that we're looking for in emergency management to be able to understand data and, and to work with that. And you gave uh, really intriguing thoughts today talking about, uh, you know, helping out your neighbors. I mean, that's that's really smart. And understanding like the, the way that the wildfires impact communities and your perspectives there, the training piece, uh, including the PIO, the public information officer, uh, or those uh, communications, like how important that is. Uh, and you allowed me to do a couple different uh, pitches for uh, Doberman Emergency Management. So, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, John, for having me. This has been it's exciting. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll probably have you back on the show because uh, each one of these, as they come out, we get a lot of people who say, "Hey, man, I, I like that a lot." And I had so many questions um, from people to to say, "Hey, can you talk about weather events and how they impact 
especially with wildfires and, and hurricanes. Yeah, I didn't even get to talk about weather all that much. So, hey, I'll well, hey, come back well, on. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Weather, weather events. Yeah, I'm probably going to get a yeah. lot of flack from people on that. That's hilarious. That's all right. Um, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on because it was a lot of fun. Um, well, if if people want to learn more about Jason and, and you want to uh, comment uh, to us, of course, you can always send us an e- uh, email at info at dobermanemg.com. But we also have the Disaster Tough podcast Instagram page, so you can check it out there. We'll upload Jason's picture up there. We'll upload you know a couple clips from uh, this episode. So make sure you follow the, uh, the the Disaster Tough podcast page. And if you want a hazard mitigation plan, you want uh, to work with analytics, you know, reach out to Doberman Emergency Management. Again, that's info at dobermanemg.com.